At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Best in Show, the only podcast dedicated to the show Rabbit and KV industry. My name is Alan Messick. I'm an Airbnb judge from California, and I'm joined each and every week with my co-host, the fashionable and sophisticated Bryony Smith, also our Airbnb standards chair from Kansas. How are you doing, Bryony? Well, right now I'm sitting here in leggings and a sweatshirt, <laughs> but but I appreciate um, the praise. <laughs> yeah, the podcasts are nice for that, isn't it? It's kind of like being on a being in Zoom class and then not really having to you know get out of your pajamas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We do a lot of these in the evenings, and it's like yeah, we're home from work or a rabbit show, and we throw on our comfy stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, uh, it's it's a busy April here uh, on the West Coast, and I'm sure back where you are too. Gosh, shows are really uh, picking up. I know I think I fly the last uh, two weekends in April and, and May is looking pretty busy too. I'm going to see you in May, speaking of that, up in Minnesota at the Rabbit Breeders Anonymous show. Yes, you will. We're looking forward to that one. That's going to be a fun one. And there's already there's already a lot of posts on Facebook regarding that show and uh, it's getting a lot of excitement. So I can't wait to see everyone in the upper Midwest for that one, as well as lots of places we're going to be traveling over the next uh, few months before summer kicks in and, and, the, and a little bit of a break happens. Um, so in this episode, we have uh, Sarah Kitzimbel from Wisconsin, who's joining us. And we're dedicating this episode in terms of years to 1995. That was the year that uh, Sarah joined the ARBA. And I've got some world events from 1995, what was going on when, when Sarah got into rabbits. And uh, I'm going to dedicate this one to cost of living, because let's face it, we all are just really annoyed with the cost of living these days and how it's skyrocketed. But uh, back in 1995, the average cost of a house in the United States was $113,000. The average income in 95 was just shy of $36,000. Here's a big one, which we all just kind of groan to, but the average cost of gas for a gallon in the U.S. in 1995 was $1.09. What is, uh, what's the gas price in Kansas right now? Um, everyone got all excited because there's one gas station in Park City that had gas for 4.43 last week. Yikes. What are you used to paying for gas before all this happened? Well, I mean, you know, it's been up and down for several years now. You, you know, people are all wound up and and I hear a lot about, "Oh, what's going to happen? Our show's going to keep going." And we have to remember that during two of the biggest gas spikes we've had over the past 
couple of decades, we've also had two of the biggest conventions we've ever had um, mm. in 2005 and 2008. So what, what I'm used to paying, that's varied a lot over the years. I do remember, you know, I started driving in the mid nineties and I remember people freaking out if gas went over a dollar. So they probably weren't real happy back in 1995 about that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm pretty happy with anything under $2 a gallon. I really like seeing that $1.99 out again <laughs> during COVID, but the law and supply and demand does not allow for that right now. So. That is one of my favorite reasons to when I drive to the Midwest is seeing those low gas prices. Because even when we're not in the current situation we are in now, California's gas is so expensive. And and right now I I, I go to LA and uh, Southern California a lot where it's just it's almost seven dollars a gallon. It's it's absolutely nuts. So gosh, a dollar ninety nine and certainly a dollar nine from nineteen ninety five. That sounds pretty darn good right now. Um, back in ninety five, also the U.S. postage stamp was thirty two cents. Uh, the average cost of a new car was just shy of $16,000. A loaf of bread was $1.15. And a dozen eggs, I don't buy eggs because I have chickens, but uh, back in 95, the average cost for a dozen eggs was only 87 cents. So, you can still uh, find that at Aldi nowadays sometimes. Really? Yeah. Oh, I guess I'll have to try it. We just started getting Aldi in California, so I don't know too much about it, but gosh, if there, things are that cheap, I might have to go frequent it a little more often. I love it. That's where I do my grocery shopping. Mm, interesting. Okay. Good to know, everybody. Uh, so what was going on in 95 in the rabbit world? Well, for this episode, I pulled out an issue of the DR from um, May, June of 1995. On the cover um, was a picture of Don Reed, who'd recently passed away. He'd served as the ARBA president from 1975 to 78. At this time, the president was from Kansas, Gary Mishu of Mount Hope. Um, I always laugh when people talk about, you know, that people are more candid now than they used to be. That's really not the case. If you open up some of these old rabbit publications, people were very candid back then too. And it's like, it's delightful. Look back at this actually. Um, but he ends some of his article. Well, first he talks about the 96, 2000 standard perfection is under production. Um, talking about getting some new pictures, updating a breed poster, and they're thinking about doing some additional products such as flashcards and pogs. Do you remember pogs? Uh, I remember the name. What What was a pog? They were those little round, like, plastic or cardboard, like, milk bottle cap things. And, like, I was just a little too old for this, but kids collected them. And uh, supposedly there was some game you played with them, although I never even saw people playing a game with them. It was just sort of like a little collector thing. I don't know. It was a, a kid thing the kids loved. But hmm. um, I don't remember seeing any of those in Rabbits. They may have, you know, sidelined that idea. But he ends all of his articles with a, um, an exhibitor etiquette tip. And this one made me laugh. It said, don't use the judging table to support yourself. If you're having difficulty standing while your animals are being judged, please rush to the nearest hospital. Hearing your animal's place may be more than your health can endure if you're already hanging on the table. Oh, my God. <laughs> Talk about candid. That was and, and that was from our president? Uh, yeah, it was. Wow. That was in an Airbnb president's <laughs> message in the domestic rabbits. That's <laughs> hilarious. I love it. It is. And one previously um, talked about, and this one's still very relevant today, and we have to make this reminder, it shows often, reminding exhibitors not to yell out the ear number or help the judge because this can be construed as identifying your rabbit, which can be construed as violating the show rule about influencing the judge. So just a, a little note to our exhibitors to remember, if the judge is having a tough time with your ear number, the secret or the table writer is there to help them out with that. 
Um, so you just need to kind of stand back and, and I know it's hard, but just kind of bite your tongue for a second. Well, and, and we've talked about this before. Face it. If the judge can't read the tattoo, the, the problem is the tattoo probably needs to be touched up. <laughs> it's yes. a very frustrating part of being a rabbit judge, not being able to read tattoos. It's like reading Braille. I just can't do it. So touch up your <laughs> tattoos. <laughs> yes. Um, there were some newly licensed judges and registrars and some that are still part of our hobby today. In this um, edition, Kitty Lynch from North Carolina and John Soper from Michigan had just received their judges' licenses. Kitty since retired hers, but judge, uh, but John is still an active all-breed rabbit and KV judge. Harry Boots the fourth from Iowa had just gotten a rabbit registrar's license. He is still an active judge. I just judged with him a couple weeks ago. And Tracy Iverson from Oregon got his registrar's license as well. He too is an active KV judge to this day. That's pretty cool. I, I didn't know that uh, Kitty retired. I remember meeting Kitty in 1999, so not long after she uh, got her license uh, at the Louisville convention. We were at the ARBA banquet, and I danced with her, and I thought that I had like been around royalty because when I was a kid growing up, rabbit judges were like celebrities, and I was like, oh my gosh, Kitty Lynch, the ARBA judge, just danced with me. <laughs> she was a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, she is, and she's still very active in shows in the area. Um, she's been showing some Jersey Woolies and Harlequins lately. So yeah, still very much a part of the hobby. Yep. In this standards committee report today, uh, from this episode or from this, um, issue, there were some interesting things that were pointed out. Um, first of all, there was a little follow-up from the presentations in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Back at this time, the presentations of new varieties were presented to the ARBA Standards Committee first. If they were approved by the Standards Committee, they then went to the Breed Specialty Club for a vote. So there was no guarantee, even if you passed a first presentation, that it would go any farther um, if your breed club rejected them. And two of these were rejected by their breed specialty clubs. Do you have any idea what they might have been? Oh, man. One has since been recognized and has actually won a best in show at an ARBA convention. Oh, man. Okay, so let me get this straight. Back then, the Standards Committee looked and approved a variety first, or a new breed conceivably. And then if it was a variety, it had to then be approved by the National Specialty Club. Yes, that that only happened after the variety had passed a first presentation to the ARBA Standards Committee. Okay, okay. And gosh, and then one of these won a best in show? Mm-hmm. Oh, Broken New Zealand? No, no, but, but Broken plus, New Zealand hasn't. They haven't won Best in Show. What am I thinking? Uh, okay. Oh, Broken Havana. Yes, oh, that was one of them. It. All right. The Havana I, Club rejected the idea of a Broken Havana in 1995. Wow! And then they came back years later and 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 got them through. Um, what was the other one? Blue Steel Dutch. Uh huh. Still has not uh, not uh, gone anywhere. <laughs> nope. There's not been another COD taken out for that color. Um. It's one that is very valuable in a Dutch breeding program. Um, the steel Dutch color is a little bit unique in that it is genetically a gold tip steel. Um, this was something that was established as they were working on updates for the 96 standard. The gene pool at the time only allowed for the creation of a gold tip steel, but the standard had called for what sounded like a silver tip steel. So the compromise in that standard, which is there till this day, is that it's a off-white to cream tip. So the rabbit genetically, it's a gold tip steel. 
but you want you don't want that um, brassiness in that ticking, that real gold color like you see in some other breeds. So for whatever reason, adding some blue in helps to reduce that brassiness. Most of the steels with the best color uh, carry blue. So a blue steel is actually a very valuable rabbit in breeding quality steel Dutch. But I did I did not know that. And but now that you're saying this, this makes sense because a blue steel will have basically silver tipping. I mean, most blue steels in any breed, like mini lops, for example, correct? Yeah, even if they're genetic gold tips, I mean, it's not a it's not real gold color. It's it's a cream or off white. So it washes um, it out. Interesting. It does. Yeah. Um, now, with the acceptance of the chinchilla Dutch, we do actually have the genetics to make a true silver tip steel, but that's not what's called for in the standard. <laughs> and as you know from seeing these in mini lops, most notably. The gold and the silver tip steel, it's even a different color. You know, there's a different bandwidth to that. The silver tip steel tends to have a little bit wider tipping. Um, they tend to be a little bit more evenly tipped. Some gold tip steels kind of have that dark dorsal stripe. Um, so, yeah, that's the blue steel is still a color that a lot of Dutch breeders who raise steels seek out. I know that I kind of have a standing order with a couple of breeders. If I ever get one, they want it. Um, but, but, yeah, that was rejected by the American Dutch Rabbit Club in 1995. Yeah, that's very interesting history there. And the other big news um, in this report was um, something that we all still kind of talk about now, and is there have been efforts to reverse this for you know decades at this time. As now, ARBA rules specified that there must be 25 shown in a breeder variety over the five years of the standard perfection for their retention the next standard. This did not happen with the blue silver fox within that period. So the announcement was that they will continue to be eligible for show and registration until January the 1st, 1996, at which time they will be an unrecognized variety. And that's the only variety we've lost for that reason um, during my membership in the ARBA. And, you know, I think just knowing that it can happen and watching the struggle to get that variety re-recognized has kind of spurred some of the interest in our rare breeds. I totally agree with you. Uh, growing up in the the late 90s in rabbits, that was still very fresh for a lot of rabbit breeders, that the loss of the blue silver fox variety because of the lack of interest by numbers at the convention. And I, I really think that that uh, triggered the rare breed movement. And we maybe weren't seeing, you know, quite the rare breeds back then that we are now, but I think that that got into a lot of breeders' heads like, hey, we need to work together to make sure that these varieties and breeds are represented at conventions so that we don't lose them. Um, and thankfully, since then, we haven't we haven't lost another variety or breed in the standard. But I, I really think that that was a catalyst back then. Yeah, I think it was. And I remember um, white Americans being kind of critical at one point and needing, you know, some more numbers in a short time to maintain acceptance in the standard. Um, so one of the things that has started this year, and this was a great suggestion that I received from Uno Kiwi from Nevada, was to publish after every convention, a list of breeds and varieties that has not yet met that 25 mark um, for uh, the ARBA website. So there are some that have not made that yet. I mean, and, and that's everything that hasn't made 25, which, you know, we have breeds and varieties at 24. I know another lilac English spot's going to show up. We're fine. Um, <laughs> but that we do need to remember that in this period, in this five years, we did have a convention cancellation. So we're looking at four conventions. So if you're interested in looking to see what 
breeds and varieties have not yet made that 25 mark, you can go to the Standards Committee tab on the ARBA website and you'll find that list and it will be updated after each convention. I think it's brilliant. Great job. And uh, that was a great advice from from Uno so that we can all stay on on this and proactive and then not come up to a situation like back in 95 when we lost Blue Silver Fox. Yes, exactly. Mm. Sorry, we'll just cut out. I had to unlock my phone. No, don't worry about it. In fact, let's do this. I'm going to do the... Um, I didn't do a rabbitry thing yet. I'll do that, and then you roll into the KW, okay? Okay. And a reminder to everyone to like and follow the rabbitry on Facebook. That will continue to serve as our hub each and every week for the Best in Show podcast. So links to previous, current, and loads more of upcoming episodes will be posted on the rabbitry uh, page. It will continue to serve as an archive. There are photos of the last... Oh, gosh, I can't believe we're already at episode 39. We've almost done 40 in the last year. There are links to all of those previous episodes, and there are so many good ones. So they are up there forever. Check out the Rabbitry page on Facebook, like and follow it. And please do share those posts because as rabbit and KV breeders around the country get more familiar with podcasts, uh, we need to share those links so that they can find those links. And your comments and your reviews on whichever platform you listen to the Best in Show podcast, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Google, or Audible, those comments mean the world to us. We do read them on the podcast. It's uh, from our listeners. And they also actually help us to link our podcast to others that might be searching through a podcast platform to find more information about rabbits and KB. So when you like it, when you share it, when you uh, give us a five star, that actually does help us with our relevance. So uh, do do that. And again, like us and follow us on the rabbitry page on Facebook. Hey, Alan, what do you call that gross buildup that happens in a rabbit's favorite corner of the cage? Ugh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Rabbits are creatures of habit, and that's the favorite corner of the cage to get really disgusting. And the problem is, they are creatures of habit. And so once they pick that corner and pee there every day, it builds up with layer upon layer, and fur gets stuck, and everything starts to stick to it, and it turns into a nasty mat. Ugh, especially when rabbits molt and fur clumps into it and gets tangled around that cage wire. It's a number one cause, actually, for rusting and failure of cage floor wire. Trying to get to that corner is actually the worst part of my chores. And I like to call that corner, well, actually, I can't say it on the podcast because it's not appropriate. But uh, I do have to use my miner's flashlight, especially for those bottom cages, to get back there and actually find that disgusting corner in the back. Well, I think I have found a solution to cleaning that problem area out. Oh, do tell, wise one. So I just got this cool tool from KW Cages called the Magic Corner Cleaner. It's designed to fit perfectly in the corner with special blades that fit in between the wires and make quick work of removing any of that built-up debris. I found out that it works like magic. Wow, Brian, I will have to check that out. And just a reminder to our listeners that you can find the Magic Cage Corner Cleaner on the KW website. That's kwcages.com. And if you use the promotion code THERABBITRY, at kwcages.com for orders over $75, you're going to get $10 off. So make sure you check out kwcages.com, use the promo code the rabbitry and get $10 off your next order over $75. And we want to thank KW once again for sponsoring this episode of the Best in Show podcast. In this episode, we welcome mini lot breeder Sarah Kitzimbel from De Pere, Wisconsin. She joined the ARBA in 1995 at the age of 13, but started before that with 4-H rabbits. 
Her biggest win includes Best Opposite Sex of Breed Minilop at the 2018 ARBA convention in Massachusetts with a solid senior doe named Erica. Professionally, Sarah is an ICU nurse. She continues to breed harder and better and aspires to win Best of Breed at the ARBA convention and even better, a group win for Best in Show. Welcome, Sarah from Wisconsin. How are you doing? I am great. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to have you on the podcast. You and I have been friends for many, many years. I have to say, when I was putting together <laughs> this interview, I thought, you know, I, Sarah could quite possibly be one of my my oldest rabbit friends in terms of friendships. Uh, we've been friends for over 20 years. And do you remember how we met? I think we met on AOL Instant Messenger for ra- a rabbit <laughs> chat group. Am yep, I right? That's, that's the same memory I have. Back in the 90s, there was that... Uh, AOL, America Online Chat Group. This is long before Facebook and social media. Right, right. Do you remember what it was called? I don't remember that. I do. You ready? What was, I'm ready. You're going to love it. It was called the hairnet. <laughs> really? <laughs> H-A-R-E? H-A-R-E, the hairnet. It was an AOL chat group. And we didn't have we didn't have Facebook. We didn't have um, profile pictures back then. We just had a screen name, like um, right? Yes, I believe so. Do you remember what yours was? I don't remember. I don't remember yours either, but I remember mine was, I think it was Llama 83 because I was obsessed with llamas when I was getting into rabbits. <laughs> thankfully, funny. I never never got a llama. I got into rabbits instead. I yeah, we do, met. Yep, I do believe we met on there and then we actually met in 2001 at San Diego Convention. That's right, yeah. So that was the thing. Like you would meet people, you would meet rabbit people in the late 90s on uh chat groups well there was only one for rabbits and then you wouldn't know what they looked like because back then we didn't have digital photos of ourselves so we had email but we weren't necessarily emailing photos of ours of each other back and forth because back then to get a digital photo you had to you know take a a hard copy and then scan it onto the computer to make it digital and then send it so none of us had those so we didn't know what each other looked like unless we saw each other maybe in a magazine Right. rabbits but yeah we did meet back there at the san diego convention in in 2001 and we were were you in youth at that, that oh one no that would have been my first open because i i looked back at that yeah that would have been i i my birthday's in june so i would have been just my first open okay i was still showing youth in oh one that was the last year i competed in youth oh well, yeah that was the last year I, I competed in royalty too um and that was was that your first time to california when you went to the convention in san diego in oh one um, I mean, I had gone on a family trip when I was younger, oh, okay. first, first rabbit convention or yeah, not first so... rabbit convention, first California one. Right, right. All right. So let's talk about your past. Um, where did you grow up and how did you get into rabbits? I have lived all my life in De Pere, Wisconsin, which is very close to Green Bay since nobody will know where De Pere is. <laughs> um, lived here my whole life. Um, my dad brought home a crossbred, crossbred rabbit for Easter one year. Remember, we named it Buttercup. It was super mean. It scratched the heck <laughs> out of him. It was nasty. Oh There's actually a picture of me and my sister in Easter dresses when I'm about five and she's about three with this rabbit. But that's the only time my dad held it because it scratched the heck out of him. <laughs> so we like threw it in the cage. It never got out again until it died down the road. So we needed something that I could like play with because I'm a kid. So I believe he found an ad in the newspaper and we went to this lady's house and it was a broken opal Charlie. (laughs) It was like the ugliest thing ever, (laughs) but I loved it. And I named her Lily Mae 
And after that, we just kind of got into 4-H and showed just a very couple that we had, maybe, you know, like four to five rabbits at the fair. And then we were at the Spring Rabbit Fun Day show, and somebody suggested we should go to the big rabbit show that was happening in the neighboring county, which turned out to be the Wisconsin Spring Fling, which is a pretty well-known show. That's a big show to start off with. Yes. So we went there in the spring. It would have been spring of 1995. And we were just overwhelmed and amazed. And after that, like the rest is kind of history. That would have been in June. So we joined the Wisconsin State Rabbit Breeders, the ARBA. And then that following September, we showed at the state convention. And I remember what I got. I got disqualified for being overweight. And, <laughs> and the broken senior buck was third out of sixth place. <laughs> that was it. So you started with a, a very vicious Easter rabbit. You right. then got into mini lops with a Charlie, and then you went to your first yes. show and was di- had disqualifications and a top placement of third, but you still <laughs> trudged on. We did. We did. I mean, I was, what, 13, so I didn't know any better and thought it was fun. So Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, you get into mini lops, and did you stick with mini lops at first, or did you uh, experiment or try yes, other breeds? I want to say about one to two years later, we did uh, have Rex also for quite some time. I think I sold those all in 2011 at the indie convention because I just really didn't have room anymore for two breeds. However, I would like to give a plug for the Rex because I really, really loved them a lot. And if I could have two breeds, I would have them again in a heartbeat. Yeah, I love Rex as well. And that's a, a good point that you're bringing up. And we, we oftentimes talk about it on the podcast. We bring up the subject of of a breeder having more than one breed. And sometimes it's just too much. And you only have so many hours in a day and focus and cage right. space. I think right. your game, would you agree that your game as a, as, a, as a competitor improves when you can have one breed to focus on? Do you agree with that? I would. I mean, I was pretty successful with the Rex too, but I mean, I've definitely done much better since I've, you know, sold them all and just concentrated on mini lops. Like I said, I just don't have the cage space anymore. I think I sold them all shortly after I bought my house because I kind of have two different rabbit trees. And I mean, it's a lot Two breeds, you know, it's a lot. These aren't, these aren't dwarfs. Um, You know, they tend to have quite big litters. So it's a lot of grow up space. Exactly. And we're going to talk about those litters in a little bit. This is actually one of the first uh, breed spotlights that we're going to do on this podcast, and it's going to be the start of many more. But we are looking forward to talking to top breeders in in different breeds and giving a preview of of the breeds, some history, what they look like, how to evaluate them, how they breed, and and maybe some advice on uh, on how to keep them and manage them and, and then do well as a competitor. So we're excited that mini lops are the first breed that we're going to do that with. And we're excited to have you uh, tell us all about them. So uh, give us some history about the, the mini lop breed in the United States and the ARBA. Yeah, um, the mini lops were developed in Germany, I know, back in the, I think it was even before the 70s, the 50s, 1960s. Um, they were originally known, I think I'm pronouncing it right, Klein Witters. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, also, I know that the first two colors, they were only in solids. They were in a goody in white. Um, the first guy from America was named Bob Hirschbach from California. He was a judge, actually, it says. Um, and he saw them at the German National Rabbit Show and then purchased a trio and shipped them back to California. 
Um, then in the 1980s, 70s, 80s, um, they developed broken color mini laps. This I definitely remember um, from a standard shin and a broken French lap. Um, but it took a lot of generations and selection and breeding to get them down to a manageable size, which I can imagine after using a French lap. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and then it's 1974, they were entered in the um, ARBA convention in Ventura, California, but they were entered under the name of Klein Witters for display only. Um, and it was very surprising. It says that they did not create much interest among the people. They kind of thought it was maybe because of the strange name or was it because of the size? Um, but after that, they changed the name to Minilop. And um, so it's all the breeders that helped develop them were actually from California. Yeah, it's, um, it's a pretty cool history that they, it is, they, have, a, yeah. they have a European uh, base, but they, were, they have a big American presence as well. They do, yeah. Four, the four breeders who really developed and promoted them were all from California. And and then the breed really took off. I mean, they remain right. a top ten breed at conventions. You know, to this day, when we look at the numbers of of breeds, I mean, when you go to an ARBA convention, how many mini lops might you expect in open, say, at a Midwest convention, like in Louisville or Indianapolis? What would you What would you expect to compete against at, in the open at, at mini lops? I mean, it was a little down this year. I think probably because of the whole RHD scare in Minnesota, plus COVID. Um, I don't even know how many, I think there were 400 maybe this year. I mean, in the past, uh, the Wichita, Kansas one, which by now is about 10 years ago. I mean, there were almost a thousand. Wow. That's a I ton mean, of mini lobs. I'd say 800 to a thousand on like a good, you know, centrally located national. And the other thing that I notice about mini lobs when I judge, I judge all over the country. I notice that wherever you go, like mini racks, there's usually a good population of mini lops. They don't seem to be a very regional breed. You know, you can travel anywhere and you're going to find mini lops competing in youth and open in, in healthy numbers. You know, it's not going to be, you know, five or six. A lot of times right. I'll, I'll judge, like I was in Oklahoma uh, a couple weeks ago and gosh, I think there were 60 in youth alone. I mean, that was a, 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 wow. big, a big show and the solid in your buck class, I think had 10 or 15. I mean, it's, and that's a, a, a typically one of the bigger classes, right? Yes, I would say so too. Probably solid senior bucks and solid senior does tend to typically be the biggest. And do they t typically go on to be some of the most successful when it comes to best of breed? I think it just depends. Honestly, I feel like maybe yes, a little bit in the solids, but I feel like plenty of brokens also win. But is it is it typically a senior breed when it comes to the show table oh, when, with uh, the winner? In general, I would say yes. Yeah, yes, I kind of agree so. with you. And um, for many years, mini lops served as the smallest lop breed, really, until hall lops were recognized in the 80s. And I, I bet that had a lot to do with their popularity, don't you think? Probably also, I would agree. Can we? I was just going to go back to the history, too. It also says their third showing was approved in 1980 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the convention, which I kind of thought was being cool since I've lived in Wisconsin my whole life. Yeah, exactly. I I wonder if um if your area actually became a sort of hotbed of mini lops because of some of the early breed history. Maybe some of the people got in from your area around that time, and yeah, maybe and it became a a breed of your area. And are mini lops popular in the Upper Midwest? Oh, definitely for sure. I mean, Wisconsin's always been a pretty big state uh, for mini lops. 
Illinois, I think, you know, I think in general, just things have dropped off in general with probably all breeds for the last couple years. Um, but yeah, Illinois used to have quite a few. I believe Iowa still does. Minnesota. I mean, the whole Midwest um, is quite large, including Wisconsin for sure. So let's talk about the Maylot breed and what they look like. You know, you've been a breeder for more than 20 years, 25 years. Uh, when you think about an ideal mini lop, what does it look like? Um, to me, a mini lop should be very massive and balanced. Um, I want something deep and round, thick, wide. I want it nice and smooth when I run my hands over it. Um, I was looking for a good top line. Um, I want the high point over the top of the hips. Uh, really well-filled loin, thick bone. It's kind of the main things I'm looking for. And in terms of the structure, the standard and where, where points are aligned, uh, you want to sp- just give us a brief uh, sure. overview of, of how that looks and what's important on the front end as well? Sure, yeah. Um, the general type is worth um, 80 points, which breaks down to the body is three points. The head is 20 points. Ears and crown, 12 points. Feet, legs, and bone are five points. And then you've got your fur color condition, which is a total of uh, 20 points. So it's a general type breed. This is not a breed that we judge or evaluate or select as breeders on color and fur, right? Correct. Definitely not. And, uh, you know, it's a common joke wherever you go in the country about mini lops that they recognize every color. Is that fact or fiction? (laughs) I think it's a little bit of both. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I agree. Definitely hear that for sure. I mean, there's so many different colors and there's a lot of them that you just don't see very often. You and know. what, what, for example, like, like a smoked pearl steel. I've probably never had one of those in my life. But I've seen them. Have you? Oh, I've seen them. But, you know, I just feel like there's a lot of definitely colors that you don't see very often. And yeah, the judge, I mean, I've heard judges say that too. Well, it's a mini lap. It's fine. yes i have been guilty of that like uh well it's not an otter so i guess it'll be fine because right tan tan pattern is the only color group that's not allowed right 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 but uh they do recognize a lot of colors and anyone that's studying for a judge or register they really do it's it's a lot to to soak in and there aren't a lot of examples as you said uh to figure out what they even look like. If you're going to look for a color like smoke pearl steel, which is recognized, right? Uh, Try to find a picture on the internet to even give you a gauge or don't expect to find one at a show to figure out what it looks like, right? (laughs) Definitely not. But that does maybe serve the breed in terms of its popularity because there are so many colors. And I know a lot of my friends that have mini lops, they they call them the rainbow litters because you can open a nest box and and really expect a myriad of, of colors. And that, and that so probably serves sometimes. to some people's interest, right? I would assume so. Yes, definitely. I have to say, you know, the kind of the dominant colors, you know, like in hollow lops, you have the torts. I mean, in mini lops, it's pretty much the steels and the chestnuts, you know, but other stuff, you know, there's all these colors. And I do think, you know, that appeals to a lot of people then too. Well, and out you here, know, for out a west, while there, what was that? I was going to say out, out West, we saw, uh, shadeds become really popular about 10 or 15 years ago. And yeah. you don't think about tort mini lops. You think about tort Holland lops, but I mean, prior to this movement, I don't know if it's a shaded movement or it just kind of spontaneously happened. Suddenly we saw torts all over the table and they were doing pretty well. Right. I don't know that we saw that quite as much here, but definitely more stable at times. I know even myself, 
um, lots of sable at times and sable chinchilla. Um, so you'll see that from time to time. But I mean, you know, there's black. I mean, there's broken opals. I wish I would get more opals. I don't really pop them out much. But I mean, yeah, I think the variety of colors definitely would help them appeal to lots of, you know, more like kids, you know, who are getting interested in them, you know. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and because chestnut is such a, a predominant color, it also in color genetics is a very dominant color. Would you say that the agouti dominance is a reason why chestnuts do so well in mini lops? I would assume that that plays a big part in it sometimes. Yes. In your own herd, you have, it sounds like you have a lot of chestnuts. So, um, because you have so many chestnuts, you probably don't get a lot of other colors. No. Yeah. I would agree with that. Although lately I was just breeding some recently and I'm like, Ooh, I have a lot of steel does right now. So (laughs) I think it kind of goes in spurts, but in general, like I have a lot of chestnut for sure. And you can breed steel to chestnut. Yes. I do it all the time. And with no problem. Correct. Been doing it for years. It's interesting because in breeds like Neville and Dwarf, if you breed steel to chestnut, you get these, what we call tweeners. And that also happens in Dutch when steel and grays, right. which are chestnuts, are bred right. to each other. You get these kind of sort of banded steels or, uh, you know, they, they're, they're both. And in breeds like Dwarfs and Dutch, that's a disqualification. But you don't set, uh, tend to find those in-betweeners or tweeners. In- no, I've never had an issue with it at all. It's interesting how that how that plays out with... Uh, with mini lops and maybe it's because color is not that important on the spectrum of, of points. So it's, you know, it's really not bred for too much attention to on the table. You know, I do Um, remember that too. When I had the rocks for quite some time, yeah, you were supposed to breed, you know, this to this and there wasn't a lot of color crossing. Right. So let's talk about why someone might raise mini lops Um, as a breeder for more than 25 years. Sell us on the breed. Tell us uh, if someone was getting into rabbits or looking for a second breed, why mini lops? Why would you- I, I mean, they're what I started out with, but I just think their personalities are wonderful. I mean, most of them, 95% of them um, have wonderful personalities. Um, the babies are really, really adorable. I know that, you know, I shouldn't still be saying that for all these years, but that does play into it for me, like raising babies and seeing them grow up. Like I enjoy that still. Um, other things, there is not a lot of prep to show them. The competition is really deep. Um, they're really great mothers. They take care of their babies and there's lots of show prospects in every litter. Yeah, I agree. I've never raised them, but I've, I've witnessed everything that you've said, um, across you know, the tables when I judge or when I speak to mini lot breeders that all those things really lend to the popularity of the breed. Um, and why might mini lops be a good choice for 4-H FFA or youth projects? I mean, sounds like they were the breed that you got into as a kid. Why do they make sense for kids? Yeah, I just think, you know, they're very easy to handle for the most part. You know, it's, they're easy to pose than more, you know, more of the other breeds. And I think they're just, that's kind of the main thing. I think there would be plus all the other reasons I just listed. Yeah, exactly. And and how about um, when it comes to uh, like their care, are they generally pretty easy to take care of for kids? I think so. Yes, they're pretty easy. They don't require, you know, sales like an Angora with all the grooming and that type of thing. Like they're pretty, though they're much easier to care for. Although I feel like, you know, there's still a lot of work involved with them in general, but for the most part, they're fairly easy to care for. And when it comes to showmanship, you know, I, I see a lot of kids 
every I always say every little girl wants a Holland Lop, right? And right. Uh, when I judge showmanship, you get a lot of little girls and and, and boys, of course, that, that have Holland Lops because they're so darn cute. But they're right. posing with a high headset can be really challenging in a showmanship competition because not right. every Holland Lop wants to keep its head up, or you get a kind of a, a wound up buck that wants to just sniff the table. Uh, mini Lops are different in their posing. Uh, tell us about how Mini Lops are posed and why that might lend well to a good showmanship rabbit. Yeah, um, that's obviously a big deal, especially when they're you know being judged, but. Um, the big thing I was always taught is you want the uh, front paws um, right under the head and that head. And then you want the hips, uh, the back feet lined up with the hips. And, you know, and more natural, you know, there's lots of people who just like push them in way too much, but it's supposed to be more natural and not so much like squishing it together. And the headset is down, correct? It's, correct. it's closer to yes. the table. Yes. Headset is down. So if you compared the the way a mini lop is posed to another breed, would you agree that, you know, they, they, they sort of have a Florida white appeal to their Correct. profile from the side, right? Correct. Yes. So definitely. head is down and they've got a top line that rises from their shoulder. And then as you mentioned earlier, when you outlined what a good mini lop looks like, their high point is then over their hips, right? Yes. Yeah, very cool. And and bone is really important too. I'm, I'm kind of diverting from the question I just asked you about showmanship, but um, a mini lop should be kind of a massive rabbit in a smaller package, right? Yes, I would definitely agree with that. And that's what it says in the standard. And uh, we didn't talk about weight earlier. We talked about your your mini lap being disqualified at your first show for being overweight, which is a common (laughs) problem. I I have to say a lot of really good mini lops look seven pounds or are seven pounds. Um, What are the weight limits for show mini lops? Yes, um, a junior cannot be over six pounds and a senior not over six and a half pounds. So it is definitely a lot in a small package. When you show your mini lops, is there a, is there a weight that in your seniors that you really like them to be at? I mean, yeah, there's definitely ones that I struggle to keep at six and a half pounds for sure. <laughs> these these mini lops like to eat a lot, so you really have to you know watch their feet on some of them, definitely. And um, would you say that smaller mini lops, say say a four and a half pound senior buck, is he going to do very well at the show, even though there aren't points on weight? No, he's just not going to be massive enough. And he's probably not going to have the bone structure to compete with the bigger animals. Yeah. And you're probably not going to find the head size as well. Correct. And smaller. Rabbits. Yes, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting that we don't give points to weight in rabbits yet. We have very clear outlines of how rabbits should weigh. Um, but in your breed, for example, those, those mini lops that are closer to the top of the scale seem to do better, right? Definitely. I would agree with that. So is it hard to find uh, mini lops to, to get it? It's like you were going to um, recommend, you know, how to get into the breed, you know, to buy your first trio or, or whatever. Is it hard to find good quality mini lops for sale or, or are they uh, a difficult uh, breed to get into? No, I think, you know, in general, the quality has improved a lot over the past 10 years, I would say in general. Um, so I would think you'd be able to find decent stock in most areas of the country. Um, I think that you're, it's a good bet to, you know, talk to judges that, you know, in your area who might, you know, travel around a little bit more whose rabbits they judge, you know, who they might recommend. Um, you know, you can look back at some of the placings from conventions, like people who consistently place well in the top 10. Um, and also, you know, breeders who have raised them for a while more so than, you know, I mean, there's a few, there's a few of us still around who've been it in a while. When I say 1995, it's like, oh my goodness, that's well over 20 years. <laughs> it's more like 25 years, honey. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> We've been doing this a while. We have. Um, 
And would you recommend for someone that was getting into mini lops, uh, say they, they did their research, they found some breeders that were in their area, or maybe they even traveled to a convention to uh, seek out some of those really top national breeders. Would you recommend buying for, from, from one herd or would you recommend, you know, buying like a trio that were total outcrosses? So unrelated to each other, how would, how would you go about it now? I would definitely go and buy them all from the same person for sure. And then, you know, work with those as much as you can and maybe add something else, you know, down the road. But I would definitely stick with one breeder to start with for sure. And why would you recommend that? I think you're going to have a lot more success breeding them together. You can do some line breeding. Um, They're probably all going to be similar in traits. You know, you breed those together and maybe look for things you need to improve and then maybe go out and add something if you need to. Um, but I think they're just going to be, it's going to be better if they're a lot more closely related in general. For our listeners that aren't familiar with, with what line breeding is, how, what is that? What explain it to uh, our, our listeners? Um, I mean, typically I think, don't they just say it's like breeding, um, like a daughter to back to a father. Um, so it's, right? it's breeding rabbits that are, that are, that are related. related to each other. Right. 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 And and what you just mentioned about breeding a father to a daughter, I mean, <laughs> if you say that outside of rabbits, people will go, you'll get some really weird looks, right? But is, is <laughs> that something that you do? I definitely do do it. Um, I more so pay attention to traits that I'm trying to fix and match them up that way. Um, I mean, I haven't bought a rabbit in quite a long time, so mine are all probably getting a little closely related, you know. But I definitely have different, like, you know, ones out of here and there. But, I mean, yeah, I think it's just better to stick with the same same breeder if you can. And, I mean, a lot of people get, get into rabbits in whatever breed, and they want success, right? right away. And right. it's not uncommon to buy, you think, okay, I'll get a, I'll get a doe from Sarah. I'll get a buck from Joe. I'll get another doe from Sally and right. they're unrelated. And then you get into, you know, what are some of the problems that, that people face when they do total outcrossing, which is the opposite of line breeding? Yeah. I've had, this was a very long time down the road. What was I getting? I was getting these weird eye spots from somebody as I brought in. And I'm just like, what is this? I haven't had this like ever. I think certain traits might pop up, you know, and, and sometimes you might have some success, but for the most part, I think maybe some like bad traits tend to pop up down the road. Right. And it's also probably going to be harder to get consistency in your litters if you have unrelated bucks and does bred to each other right so correct for example you might see a real diversity in in overall type you may get some longer shoulders or finer bone some with heavy bone some with slipped crowns and folded ears while there's in the litter might have good ears right so you're going to find right. a more diverse litter when you outcross i would agree with that have you ever uh you know looked at your herd and were like you know i really need to work on head for example or shoulders so you did outcross. You had to go find one, right? I mean, right. in that case, you would recommend then bringing in something else, right? Yes, that's what I would recommend. You know, once work with what you have, and then once you need some, find something you need to fix, then maybe then go out and purchase something else that you could like breed back into what you have. I've heard of some breeders outcrossing like that, but then in those outcrosses, seeking rabbits that might even be related to rabbits that they had. For example, maybe they sold rabbits to somebody. And then that person, you know, did their own thing and, and sort of created their own program. Have you ever bought rabbits from someone else that maybe originally had some of your own stock in the pedigree? 
I have done it a couple times. Yes. With success? Yes. Yeah. A couple years ago, I sold some to somebody I knew back a long time ago. And then he kind of, um, his kids weren't quite as interested in them. So he was kind of downsizing and I took some of them back and yeah, I've definitely gotten some, some that I've kept out of that that line for sure. It's probably a, a good reason why we as breeders should sell good rabbits to other people because say down the road, we run into problems ourselves and we lose maybe a line or lose a trait that we once had. It's nice to be able to have that bank of genetics that are somewhat local or still going on for us to pull back from. Right. I would definitely agree with that. Yes. So it'd be very reassuring. Yeah, totally. Let's talk about the management of the mini lot breed. Uh, What size cages do you use? Uh, Do bucks get different size cages than does? And what about a doe with a litter? I actually do not mine all. I only have one size cage. Um, They're all 24 by 30 and I keep everyone in the same cage. That's a pretty big cage. I mean, I don't know what other people use, but I think they're pretty good. <laughs> I, I think they're pretty good size. It's just what I've used forever. Well, I have to know. say, if I was a if I was a mini lob senior buck, I would want to live at the Taj Mahal at your place. <laughs> if I got a twenty four by thirty cage, that's a pretty big cage for a buck. <laughs> that's what they all have. Wow. And do you have stacking cages or hanging cages? Um, I actually have two rabbit trees. I have one in my garage, which I call the rabbit room which is like a whole insulated wall. Um, You know, there's like my cars and then this wall and then the rabbit room. So there I have stackers, which I am not a fan of. It's a lot of cleaning. I need to put it in the garbage. Um, And then out at my parents' house, which is like where the main rabbit tree's been, um, they're actually on these sawhorses, but so they're more, but they're a hanging cage, but they're on like these sawhorse things. And then we have sand underneath. And what what do you find? a lot that's just a lot more easier to clean than the trays all the time. Especially why is, why is that? I'm just not a fan of the trays. I've only had them since I've had my house. <laughs> so you have to do a lot more regular cleaning when you have trays. Right. I mean, I clean them every week, if not more than in the summer, probably twice a week. And then uh, a hanging cage out there at your parents' house that are over sawhorses, which conceivably are what, three or four feet over the ground. How often do you have to clean those out? I clean that once a week. Oh, you do? That's that's pretty good. I mean, for sure in the summer and the winter with our Wisconsin weathers, I mean, if it's frozen, I can't really clean it. So sometimes it's like two to three weeks in the winter if it's really cold out. But in the summer and when I can, definitely once a week. Yeah. And then um, do you find that the rabbits do better in stacking cages or out at your parents? Have you ever looked to see which, which rabbits maybe bred well or showed better or looked better no, or seemed I healthier? Don't think, I don't think there's any difference. I also have an exhaust fan in my rabbit room. And I mean, I clean those things all the time. So I think I'm clean them very often. I would think, I think keeping your animals clean has a lot to do with their condition and their just well being. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And we'll talk about the exhaust fan. What, what are you trying to do? in your rabbit room with that exhaust fan? What, what is it? What is it? What environment does it improve for the rabbits? Um, just their airflow, giving them fresh air. Um, so the ammonia smell doesn't build up from their urine. And with your exhaust fan, I imagine it's, it's, it's pulling air from the room and then kicking it out. Yeah. Side, yes. right? I, so like, open my, open the garage door. I have a, um, you know, door that you walk through in between. I keep that opened and then I have windows that I can open. 
So you have air coming in from the outside that's being pulled Correct. by the exhaust fan on the opposite side of the room. So it's a yes. constant airflow, a exactly. constant exchange of air. Yeah, it's exactly. really, really smart. What happens when you say when the power goes out or the exhaust fan isn't working? Does it smell differently in there? Um, I mean, I've never, it, it doesn't run all the time either. I should say I never run it when I'm not home and it's with that insulated wall in there. It's actually keeps a lot of the heat out in the summer. Um, what was your question okay. again? Repeat that. Uh, well, I mean, I know I've, I've been into rabbitries that don't have good exhaust or maybe the fan broke right, and, right, and right. it smells. I mean, you can, you're, my, sometimes my eyes will, will water just by the ammonia buildup. And you can only imagine if you were a rabbit living in a cage that, uh, you know, we're constantly in there. It would be detrimental well, to their exactly. overall health and performance. That's why I keep them clean in the summer. I mean, it's really only the summer when I feel like it, you know, smells as clean as I keep them and I put shavings in there, you know, but I'm like, if I were sitting in there, I wouldn't want to smell that. But most of our weather here, you know, for what eight months out of the year is not super hot, like in some parts of the country. So, I mean, I think that plays into things just might smell a little better, but I mean, good airflow is super important. I've definitely been in other people's rabbit barns, and I'm just wondering how the rabbits get fresh air. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's talk about feeding and nutrition. How much do uh, mini lops eat, and does it does that vary on the time of year or the age of the rabbit? Yeah, um, I mean, if I have moms with litters, and until the babies are a couple months old, I honestly just give them open feed. I just fill up the dishes. Um, but otherwise, you know, once they get past the three months age i feed them about it's a, probably a slightly heaping half cup daily and definitely about, more in, more in the winter when it's especially cold out here we talked about uh, mini lobs having a tendency to be overweight uh when they go to show and I, like i said mini lobs look really good at seven pounds but seven pounds is half a they pound do. too big so do they get fat pretty fast they can if you don't watch it for sure I mean, you really, if it's something you want to show, you really have to be watching their feed in my, in my experience. And I'm going to go back to, I just want to give a little plug for all of us people who have to haul frozen water dishes in the winter. It's really a lot of work and we are very dedicated. <laughs> yeah. Like I've, I've been I... doing a lot of that this winter for, you know, a couple months. Like it's a lot of work. I grew up in New England, as you know, and uh, when I turned oh, 19, remember. I got in a Volvo and I left frozen <laughs> Crocs for the rest of my life. And I, I enjoy automatic watering system now in California. It's, it's, right. it's a luxury. You know, and, you know, they definitely, after having that for a couple months, they are definitely, you know, a little bit out of condition for sure, just because they don't have as much water, you know, but that's kind of what I have out at my parents' house. So it's, Better than nothing. The ones in my garage, their water doesn't freeze unless it's like, you know, 20 below out for an extended period of time. And then they'll, uh, then they'll freeze in my garage also because it's not yeah, heated. I, I mean, you live, you live in the, pretty much in the tundra <laughs> up there in the upper Midwest. The frozen tundra. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how you do it. And I believe you told me one time you like winter. I do actually like winter. I like the snow, although it's April 2nd and it was snowing again this morning. So I'm over it now. Um, but I like, you know, snow for Christmas and I just like skiing and kind of getting outside and it is pretty at first, but at, at now I want spring. Yeah. I, uh, gosh, I'm in a t-shirt today. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, it's, it's <laughs> 75 here. Um, I'm but back my to winter jacket. 
I'm sure you are. Um, back to rabbits or mini lops. When you, we talk about the cold, do you find that they they look better when it's cold out? Say they have, you know, of course, proper water, as you mentioned, if they have right. a frozen water crop, they're not going to feel as good. But do you feel like mini lops condition better when they're colder? I do. I feel like, you know, they have great fur when it's cold out and there's no shows to go to. <laughs> That's a problem up there, isn't it? It is. Uh, there, I mean, there's a few here and there, but with my work schedule, I just, I have to work every third weekend and, you know, I don't definitely don't get to as many shows as I would like to actually since, you know, 2020, there really weren't many in Wisconsin. I went to zero shows and in 2021, I went to two shows. I went to that spring fling show in June and I went to the ARBA convention in Louisville and that's it. So I've been to two shows in the last two years. (laughs) I need to get get out. I need I need to get out this spring because this is a lot of work to keep doing. That's what I told and myself. When you weren't showing a lot, were you still focusing and breeding at your place? Oh, yes. I maybe didn't breed as quite as many in 2020. I know I didn't, but I definitely, I believe at that time too, though, when I bred in the spring, we didn't know that convention would be canceled. So I definitely bred some, uh, but not as many as I was maybe normally breed. When we talk about uh, weather and, um, you know, getting ready for a show, how, how are they in terms of grooming? What do you, you know, what do you do or, or do mini lops shed a lot when they're molting? Um, they, how do you manage their fur? They do shed a lot. I'm going to say typically mine only shed about twice a year. The big time of the year is um, in August. I feel like in August and September, I have nothing to show, which stinks because our Wisconsin state convention is always the weekend after Labor Day. And I feel like I'm pulling teeth to find something that doesn't look like a fuzzy lop that time of year. <laughs> um, typically, mine do a big molt in like August, September, maybe a kind of winter molt too a little bit. But for the, you know, the most part, I would brush them a lot when that's going on. But other than that, you know, I don't really groom them much before a show. Maybe just some take your hand and get wet and get the loose fur off. But that's about it. I mean, there's, so that's another advantage, you know, for kids and things like that. There's pretty minimal grooming involved. Yeah, exactly. I I would agree there. Um, Let's talk about breeding now. Uh, What's an average mini lop litter size? Um, My rabbits, I don't know, I do know about most people too, but I mean, I get a big litters. uh, I'd say six to eight with more like the seven, eight. Um, I will say that when you're trying to breed them in like the fall around here, I've definitely found fall or winter breedings are definitely smaller. And I think the rabbits just know, I think they're affected by the daylight, you know, it gets so dark up here. And also, you know, the rabbits are not stupid. They know it's Wisconsin and it's going to be cold soon and they don't want to have babies. <laughs> right. But I mean, when I breed now in the spring, oh my goodness, like I don't have unlimited room anymore. So I can't just breed a ton because I will get litters of eight and that adds up very quickly. I can't imagine. I raise dwarfs. I wish I had litters of eight. (laughs) (laughs) I bet. Do you get um, peanuts with mini lops in litters? Those are the little ones that don't survive. That's great. That's another nod to the breed. Right. Occasional runs. Yes, of course, but I've never had a peanut ever. So, and you mentioned that conception rate is pretty good uh, during times of year when it's warmer, yes, um, which means what you, you, you bring a doe, you breed her to the buck and then do you palpate at 11 days, 12 days, or do you just expect that she's going to have babies I, in 30? I am actually not great at palpating. Um, I've had people try to show me a couple of times. I just, I don't know. I'm not good at it. <laughs> so I just go by, you know, are they look like they're getting bigger? Sometimes I'll weigh them. I mean, 
it's very rare in the spring that one of mine would miss. Like I almost always get a litter. That's, that's incredible to have nearly a hundred percent conception rate uh, right. for a breed. I, gosh, again, I raised dwarfs. I wish that was, I wish that was the case. I it mean, seems like 30 you know, or 40% never, sometimes. Right. I've never done like, you know, figured it all out, but I would say probably over 90% conception rate is what I see. Incredible. Wow. And how are mini lops as mothers? Are they, are they good about using a nest box and do they take care of their oh, babies? Yes. yes. I mean, these are all like going back to why would you raise mini lops? Like these are all, you know, bonus points. Like they're great mothers. Um, it's very rare that they don't take care of their babies. Um, they're just great moms in general. So I always have the option. I usually breed at least two because I like to have the option to foster if I need to. And that's never, I've never had a problem with that as long as I do it within the first couple of days they're born. What does fostering mean and why might someone want to do that? Um, fostering is when you are giving a baby to another mom to raise. And you would do that and because? I would do that because, for example, I had one and I bred a, had a couple born in February and this one, I mean, she's kind of older. She had one baby. Well, I don't want her to raise one baby because it's going to get too big. So the other one had, what, five. So I gave her two. So then they both have three. Or for obvious reasons, if the mom is like not doing well or not taking care of them, I have had that happen on rare occasions where the mom just isn't taking care of them. But for the most part, I don't have a problem with that. They're great moms. So when you're fostering kits, you know, sometimes you can't even tell what color they are at birth. How do you know when you take a baby from uh, doe A or Erica, let's call her Erica. How do you take, how do you know when you take Erica's baby and put it on Sally Mae's litter? Uh, that <laughs> Sally May, I love in, <laughs> in two months that you're looking at Sally Mays right. versus, versus right. Erica's. How do you know, how do you can, how can you identify them or how can breeders do I that mean, if they're fostering? That's probably another reason why I kind of always try to breed a salad and a broken together. Um, because then with the brokens are very easy to identify. I'll just like make notes, but also, you know, majority of what I get is for salads are steel or chestnuts and the steels will always have a solid colored belly and the chestnuts will have a white belly. So I have, you know, my ways. I've never done the little tattooing thing on a baby. So those are my ways to keep straight who comes from who. But that is an option, you know, for say you have, say Sally Mae and Erica are both chestnuts and you breed them to a broken chestnut buck. In theory, they're probably going to have very similar colored litters. And uh, uh, some people like I, what I do when I foster, I use um, like a, a single needle and I'll put a few dots with some ink in the right ear of the of the newborn, and then I'll make some notes, you know, maybe on the cage tag or in my breeding book, to know that oh, look for three dots in one of the baby's right ear. That one came from Erica's letter that I fostered onto Sally May. <laughs> right, it right. It works usually pretty well. Right. Um, what kind of nest boxes do you use? Wooden or metal? And how big are they? I actually use both i did measure the metal ones um it's probably like a medium-sized box it's like 16 inches long by nine wide by nine high um you can pretty much get those i think from any like major cage dealer so i do use those um but i actually prefer my dad actually made these they're really old um these wooden ones which are bigger than the sizes i previously mentioned um the reason i like those ones is because their mom has like a nice big area on top to sit on where she can get away from the babies when they're annoying her. And, you know, once <laughs> they start coming out and they're like trying to nurse all the time, she can like get away. Um, and then we also have these little boards that we'll put over the front because sometimes they'll just, you know, as you know, pop out too early and then they end up, it's cold out or something like dead on the wire. 
Right, exactly. Those those little like guards so, to right. keep them. They're still attached to, to the mom's dinner plates as she's right. jumping out of the box. Sometimes they go for a ride, and if you're not exactly. there, watch. They don't last very long on the wire. Right, especially um, in Wisconsin. So you know, I like the I like the big older wooden ones. Um, but I mean, I definitely use the metal ones. I use both. And at what age do you wean the babies from the mom? Uh, I would say about five, well, probably more like five, six weeks, more so six. It just kind of depends when I feel like it's getting crowded and she needs a break. And what does that mean to, to wean? Does that mean uh, that you notice that the babies are eating or that they're just too crowded? You know, what? how do you decide, okay, it's time? I mean, I kind of just go by, they're definitely for sure eating and have been eating for probably a couple weeks on their own. And I just kind of, I'm like, it's getting a little crowded in here. Do you give hay to babies at that time? I don't really. Um, I probably should, but I just feel like like it all falls through the wire anyway. So I don't know. Gosh, I don't. Yes. I don't. I don't really feed hay. Honestly, I just feed them pellets. That's it. I'm, I'm listening to you, and I'm wondering why I don't raise mini lops after all these years. They sound like a pretty <laughs> easy, easy managing breed. Uh, they my, are. They really are. With my dwarfs, when I'm weaning, they're like, uh, "Food? What? Where's mom?" And so I have to give hay every day oh, just no. to keep the gut moving and get they... them interested in food before no, they even they look will at a pellet. Start eating on their own. I don't give them hay at all. I sh- I probably should, but I mean, I just don't. Like I said, it. Well, hey, if you don't have to, so, that's one less thing. It's just so messy, and I just, you know, I don't know. They seem they seem totally fine without it. So. And when you wean, do you take the mom away from the litter or do you take the litter from the cage and give them their own new cage? Nope. I always take the mom away. So that means the babies are a little more familiar with their environment and it probably smells yes. like what they're used to and they're, they're less stressed. Yes. And uh, what's, what age do you start evaluating your junior? So you say you wean the litter at you know five or six weeks. At what age, or maybe it's before that, do you start going, oh, that one might be a good one? And, and what traits do you look for at that right. time? You know, I feel like, yeah, definitely sometimes you'll be like, oh, my goodness, that one looks really good. I should get it out. I try to evaluate them at like four to six weeks. I'm going to say I don't always get to it because I'm very, very busy, especially with work. Um, so sometimes if I don't, then I probably won't look at them until they're about three months old because I just feel like maybe from two to three months, they're really, they kind of go through some uglies. And so I just kind of let them be. Are there any traits when you look at juniors that you're just like, that, that, that trait is never going to get any better. And you know, from the get go that it's probably not going to be a good show prospect. Right. I should also say too, kind of my, how I do it too, is like once they get to about three months, maybe a week or two past that, I will give them all their own cage. And that's when I feel like they really start to develop and kind of grow into themselves once they get their own cage. I don't know Uh, how it is for other breeds, but you know, with the mini lops, sometimes like they will start chewing on each other's ears and like, I don't want ones with a big chunk out of their ear because obviously I can't show those. So like when they start getting to a certain age, I'm like, you need your own cage, you know? So if you have a litter of eight or nine, you actually will keep them until they're three or four months old and give them their own cages to, to grow uh, out before the, you make for decisions? For the most part, yes. Wow, that's part. a lot I of cages. Will, I know, that's why I'm telling you. I can't, you know, breed unlimited. I will say that, though, you know, along the way, I'll, like, if I had a litter of eight, I'll break it down to like four and then two, you know, down the road. I don't leave them all together, obviously. What, um, what uh, really type rates do you do you evaluate on when you, when you start making those decisions, yeah. which babies do you decide are not going to go any farther uh, in right. your program? 
I mean, a lot of the things I'm looking for is if they have a, you know, if they're long, if they're flat, if they're undercut, um, if they have, you know, narrow shoulders, if they're sliding off, did I say hollow loin? That's a big thing I'm focused on, you know, just traits that I don't want in my herd. Do you find that juniors with like at that age, maybe four to six weeks old or even up to three months, if they have long shoulders, do they ever overcome those shoulders or are they typically long flat rabbits or longer rabbits as they mature? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a trait that probably really doesn't change at all. Yeah. And do you think that mini lops are early developers or do you have to take some of your your rabbits are like, you know, that one time this one as a baby looked really good, but it's not looking so good now. Do you ever uh, put them in a bottom cage and maybe come back in a few months uh, then to look at them again? Right. I will do that at times, but, you know, not for excessive periods of time. I tend to find mine are more early developers, you know, and that once they show you kind of what they're going to be, they're really not going to change a whole lot. Yeah, that, that must help you with a breed that is so prolific to be able to recognize those traits early on. So you don't have to waste cage space basically waiting for one to kind of come into itself. You can tell early on some of those things that are, that are going to be positive or, or negative. You know, I've heard of people saying, Oh, I've let this one sit here for a year. And I'm thinking to myself, I am not letting anything sit around for a year. Like if I don't know before then, like, eh, I just don't have that kind of room. And, you know, I have other things that I do. So I kind of like to keep my numbers down as much as I can. You were saying that you don't get to many shows uh, over the last uh, two years anyway, but maybe when you were showing more, if you, if you were, you had more opportunity to get away on the weekends, at what age would you start taking juniors out for the first time, maybe to get them used to the table or getting some comments from judges? Yeah, um, I would say probably four and a half to five months old, you know, on the younger end of that, when they're, I'd say they're probably only at five months, are they really going to be competitive in a junior class? But sometimes it's nice too just to take them out earlier so they get used to the show and the noise and things like that. That's really interesting because a junior is under six months old. So in your barn, your juniors only have about a month to to go to shows, right? Right. That's about wow. it sometimes. And that's probably a nod to the the mini lab breed because they have to be massive and younger mini labs, I, I assume, don't show very well. Correct. I mean, you know, on occasion, you'll see one that's, you know, probably a newer person and they bring this teeny tiny rabbit and it's just, you know, can't compete with the bigger, more massive animals who happen to be older. And um, in a lot of breeds like my breed dwarfs, they get dewlaps, those senior does after they start, you know, kindling and their show life is done. You know, you can show a, a Netherland dwarf buck for a long time, but a doe, they have a shelf life once they start breeding. What about mini lops? Can you show a doe after she's had a litter? Uh, does she ever come back into condition where she can compete? Yeah, and do well? definitely. That's kind of another perk of them also. Um, I mean, I've definitely showed rabbits who, I mean, maybe not so much these last couple of years because I really haven't shown like I used to, but um, definitely, I've definitely had them come back after litters um, and be do very well and be successful. Because if if you have a doe with a dewlap, that's not a disqualification. It's not really even that much of a Correct. fault, is it, in a mini lop? Correct. I will go back to two and say, like, when I had the Rex, once they had the litter, they were done. You were never showing that thing again in mini <laughs> Way different. It's kind of Yeah, nice. well, that's, that's a fur breed, so that, that tends to go go with, uh, they have some shelf life associated with fur breeds that, that mini lops don't, don't seem to have. Right. And uh, what about bucks? Do they get better with time? Do you find that older senior bucks look better and, and do better at shows? 
I would definitely agree with that. I mean, sometimes, I mean, the, yeah, they might go out of condition, not every show, but I mean, you can show a buck for gosh, two to three years, sometimes, you know, pull it out at that three year mark. And you're like, Oh my goodness, this guy looks good. I'll bring him. Do you find that their heads develop even with age at that point? Yes, I would agree with that. Definitely. And uh, what about ears? Do they get thicker or better furred as they get older? Um, not as much as the heads, but I think somewhat, yes. And we talked about fur and condition not being a, you know, a big part of the breed uh, in terms of points. I think what fur has four points. I mean, it's pretty minimal. What does it say? It's five. Five yep. points. So, so yeah, no, five. Actually, I take it back. Ten points for oh. five color, five condition. Okay. So, okay. So you have what, 15 to 20 points then on fur color and condition, which right. still in, in the grand scheme of things, isn't that big of a deal. But do you find that, uh, can you show a mini lop that's not finished, but maybe has a huge head, short, compact, deep body, good bone. Do you find that unfinished rabbits with good type still compete well in mini lops? Not really. I kind of need the to- total package. I mean, maybe at some of your maybe smaller shows, but if it's a bigger show with more competition, the rabbit definitely needs to be finished. Yeah, especially for a convention. Let's go back to Erica, your 2018 Best Opposite Sex of Breed convention winner. Uh, was she in great condition at the convention? She was. And did you do anything special to prepare her or your your mini lops when you when you get ready for a convention? Do you do you do any kind of feed supplements or take them out daily and groom them? What what, no, what does it take to get a I, mini lop to the show table? I don't. I only feed them pellets. I don't give them anything else. I might occasionally more so the ones at my house give them a little scoop of oatmeal now and then or a little shredded wheat, but it's more like because they're kind of a little bit, you know, no, it makes them happy. And it makes me happy when they're out there chomping away, you know, but <laughs> I don't, I don't routinely give them anything other than pellets and water, fresh water. That's it. Gosh, you are, you're selling these breeds. You, you, you should be a mini lop salesperson because I'm, I'm about <laughs> sold on them already. Um, um, when it comes- you know, and as far as, prof- I will say that I'm, you know, typically very busy, <sighs> I like to try and get them out at least weekly and do a little grooming if I can. Um, but it doesn't always happen, but I think that definitely helps, especially in the fall when you're trying to get things back in Fergan after the summer and the molting. But I will say that it's definitely important, especially for the junior rabbits to get them out and pose them. So they're used to posing, um, especially at some of those big shows and conventions, you want the rabbit to sit there and not be, you know, moving all around when the judges may be going between the top couple of animals. I have to say from a judge perspective, I find mini lops to be pretty docile. Um, and I, I think you've said that earlier too, why they're good for kids because they're pretty easy going rabbits. But I will say with that said that I think I've been bit as a judge more times by mini lops than any other breed. <laughs> and it's usually a wound up junior buck or young senior buck. Have you seen that? Right. I've, I've also heard that by other judges. And I mean, it's honestly, to me, it's kind of surprising. I very rarely will have one that's like a biter and I just don't keep it around very long because I'm not putting up with that. So maybe, maybe uh, they sort of evolved in your own herd. If you're not going to put up with it, a wound up buck, then he's probably not going to breed that, that kind of high strung nature into his own offspring. Would you, would you think that maybe um, kind of handling ability is sort of genetic? It must be. Yeah. That would make sense. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. I've had some really wound up bucks that I love. I mean, they're beautiful. And then I go to breed them and they just make more that are wound up like that. And they never show well, even though they look great. They don't behave on the table. They're bouncing around like popcorn. And um, when you get a junior buck at a convention, especially when when they're cooped in like that top cage and they're just running in circles, you know, it's like, and then they go to the table and they, they just don't perform. They've probably also exhausted all the calories they've eaten. So they feel like they don't feel good either. Right. <laughs> That's true. So I think that we don't talk about it enough, but breeding rabbits with good temperaments is a, a practice that'll do us well in the long run. It sounds like maybe you weren't thinking about it, but you probably have been doing it for years. Right. I mean, from my perspective, like I just don't want to put out, put up with a rabbit that's going to like take my hand off when I'm taking care of it. That's just (laughs) not acceptable to me. As a judge, I certainly don't want to put my hand in a coop. That's going to take my hand off either. (laughs) Right. And you know, some of them, my dad still takes care of the ones at his house and trust me, he doesn't want to deal with that either. Exactly. When it comes to showing, can I speak about my dad quick? He, I told him I was doing this and he wants to say that um, raising rabbits gives him something to do when he's retired. So he enjoys doing it as much as I hear about that. He doesn't, he actually still does. And he wants to say that uh, all the fertilizer has greatly improved our garden over the years. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's a great thing for people that are retired. And we, we find a lot of people that, that uh, were doing rabbits for a long time. They, they, then they retire and they come back and their, their rabbits are better than ever because it becomes sort of their job. Right. Right, right. I can't get out here as much as I, you know, every, it's a couple times a week, more so when it's nicer out than in the winter. But I also have to keep my numbers down a little bit too, because I have him taking care of a lot of them. And, you know, he likes less rather than more. He likes empty cages. (laughs) Especially, I mean, especially in the winter, like it's a lot with the frozen water and everything. Yes, exactly. And if you're getting litters of eight or nine, you have to be really strategic about your cage space. Right. And honestly, I don't breed much that time of the year because I don't want to deal with that in the winter. I breed a little bit in the fall and I will start again in like February, but I try to not have a lot of babies over winter just because it's so much work and the cold weather here plays into that. Yeah, exactly. Um, We talked about the, the colors earlier in this episode and, and what they're recognized in, how are mini lops shown in terms of classes? Yeah, they are shown in, do you just mean like the juniors under six months and then the I mean, in, in terms of colors, then, yeah. In, in yeah, terms of the, like how they're broken down at the, at the judging table. Yeah, they do. Uh, we just do set, we do all the solid colors together and then all the broken. So it's a lot easier than some of the other breeds like dwarfs say, where you break every color down individually. So there's, there, there's, there are eight classes then yes. when you go to a mini lap show, right? Yep. There's sal- you want me to list them all? Yeah, go for it. Yep. Um, solid senior buck, solid senior doe, solid junior buck, solid junior doe. And then the judge will pick a best salad and a best opposite of variety solid. Um, then we do broken. So broken senior buck, broken senior doe, broken junior buck, broken junior doe. And then they pick a best and best opposite of those. And then those four will compete for best to breed and best opposite. And that makes for a very competitive show table, especially at a big show like a convention where if you have a thousand mini lops at the convention, there are eight chances only to win a class. Right. right? Exactly. <laughs> so to win a, to even win a class at a convention, let alone best of breed, that's that's a big feat, right? It is. It is. You know, and honestly, when there's the big numbers, honestly, 
you know, top 10 and even top five is, you know, you're doing well. You have to be happy with that sometimes because like you said, only eight rabbits can win their class. So out of, you know, 800 to a thousand mini laps, only eight of them are going to win their class. Like that's your chances are not very, you know, great, but. Do you find that some people get discouraged by that? You know, maybe kids, especially if you've got a lot of rabbits in the breed competing and you don't walk out there with even a class win, even at a local show, do you find that some people might even get discouraged by that? I don't really think so. I think the people who like the mini laps are going to stick with it just because they like the breed in general. I don't feel like I've ever heard that too much. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I hear from some breeders, maybe it's, maybe it's a personal thing, but uh, you know, when it gets really competitive that it's not as much fun, but at the same time, for someone like you, that just probably drives you harder to make better and more competitive rabbits, right? Right. You know, I think it's things are when you're a kid, you know, it's maybe a little bit different, you know, some are doing it more because they like the rabbits and for fun. And then there's the ones who are, you know, more competitive and really into it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I've kept you long enough on this podcast and you've, gosh, you've shared some great information and certainly have sold the mini lob breed, I'm sure to a lot of our listeners. And <laughs> I have to admit myself too. I wasn't, I mean, I like mini lobs. I like judging them, but uh, gosh, there's a, there's a lot of benefits to raising that, to raising there your really breed. No wonder they're so popular. Um, before I ask you the last question, uh, maybe for us, could you share with guests how people might be able to contact you for more information about mini lops and, and the breed? How can people learn more and, and find you? Um, I do still have Facebook, although I don't go on it very much anymore. Um, probably that's probably the best way because I know you've said on these podcasts before, you know, Facebook is kind of our rabbit, uh, community way to communicate. So that's, I mean, they can get a hold of me on there if they have questions or anything like that. So Sarah could symbol on Facebook yes. and, uh, do you have pictures of your rabbits on Facebook? Uh, I barely, you know, I did post one recently if they, well, I did do a post after Louisville. So if they search back, but I mean, I definitely, if they probably search my pictures and things like that, definitely throughout the years, just not much lately. Very good. And of course we recommend everyone to get a copy of the ARBA standard of perfection to figure out, uh, the point schedule and how the, the breeds are described regardless of what breed that, uh, that you raise would, do you have a copy of the standard? I sure do. I got my new one once at last spring, I think. Yep. And I'm you are an a registrar, so you know I need it for that reason too. I forgot to mention that in the in the bio, you are an ARB registrar, and uh, if you ask me, and I've been telling you this for <laughs> years, you should also be an ARBA judge. You've been doing this long enough and very successful I breeder. I, I really hope that you consider that license. I should. I know. I would certainly I mean, see a lot more. I, of you. <laughs> you would. I. I could do it. I would need somebody to teach me about running breeds and wool. And other than that, I think I'd be golden. Well, we are in t- in store for a reunion. I certainly miss you, and I only get to see you, you know, <laughs> know. once a- once a year. I would be happy to teach you about those running breeds. And gosh, everyone knows <laughs> I like wool, so <laughs> I might even teach you about angora goats at the same time. And you'd be wearing a mohair sweater by the end of it. But uh, <laughs> that's a topic for another day. Uh, one last question for you, Sarah, and thanks for joining us on this episode. If you could, and we, by the way, we ask everyone this this question, if you could imagine your perfect rabbit show, what would it look like for you? Um, I'm just going to say a really great day with lots of friends and beautiful weather, not too hot, not too cold, and just people having a good time together and, you know, sharing their rabbits and yeah, having a good day together. And maybe uh, winning best in show? I mean, yeah, that's always icing on the cake. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but not always I would, required. I would like to feel good at the show also. I mean, you know, that's that makes it even a little bit more fun. But just, you know, it's also, you know, just to get out again and see people again, since I feel like it's been so long, people might not even know I have rabbits anymore because I've, <laughs> I've been MIA the past two years. So, yeah, let's let's dust you off, get you off the shelves, and back back on the show scene. Well, I'm hoping to go to a couple this spring, but so far my weekend schedule is not working out very good with the shows. So I might have to do some trading at work, but I'll make it to something. Well, I hope to see you down the road at a show at maybe convention by the time that happens. But um, for those that live in the upper Midwest, I hope that they get to see you and your beautiful rabbits uh, this yeah. this spring and some more opportunities. Thank I you again, Sarah. For definitely be going to Reno for sure. Ah, well, good. You'll be heading west and uh, I'll certainly see you in Reno because I'll be there, of course, as well. So thanks for joining us, Sarah, on this episode, uh, giving us a spotlight on the, the mini lot breed a breed that's been around in the in the ARBA since the early 80s and uh, still continues as one of the most competitive and uh, biggest breeds in terms of numbers throughout the country uh, to this day. Yes, thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Thanks for all your information. Yeah, you're welcome. Good luck at the shows. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Alan, that was a great interview with Sarah and I think a good start to another theme that we're going to be working on, which is episodes that spotlight certain breeds. I love that. As we uh, dove into season two, one of the goals that you and I outlined was uh, uh, some education and uh, spotlighting breeds, talking about their histories and how to manage them, how to select them, and maybe even how to find them. That's going to be really beneficial to our listeners. Yeah, I think so. So for this episode, it's a little bit of education slash history. We're going to talk a bit about mini lop colors because that has actually changed quite a bit over the years from standard to standard. The first standard they were included in was the 1981 through 1985 standard. Of course, that was published um, to be ready by January 1st, 1981. And this was um, when that standard went into effect. So it's published as the working standard with a note to judges that um, the final acceptance was only that January 1st of 81. In this edition of the standard, color and markings was assigned 15 points and they were divided into solid and broken, as they are now. The solid colors included the Selfs, Shaded, and Agouti. And that was it. Um, it doesn't have any descriptions of the colors. It's just any rabbit that was Self, Shaded, or Agouti. And broken colors could include any color in combination with white. So was it a Self, Shaded, Agouti solid? Or was it a rabbit with spots? That <laughs> <laughs> All of those were accepted. So there was really no concept of you know non-recognized colors in the broken at all it's probably why a lot of us still say uh when we're presented with a rabbit in front of us a mini lop the color is a bit odd and sometimes we're like oh well it's a mini lop as sarah said in her interview that a lot of people say that well it's a mini lop so if it's not a tan pattern it's it must be recognized but there are some varieties that i've seen in mini lops that to this day or not. So uh, yeah, probably goes back to some history there. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, if, if everything was recognized, why not just throw it all together and see what color comes out <laughs> <laughs> by the 1986 through 1990 standard, the points allotted to these had been reduced. There were only 10 points allotted to color and markings and they were still shown in solid and broken. That was what was listed under the breed title and the breed standard. It said solid colors included self shaded, Pointed white, a goody ticked, but not animals of the basic tan pattern. 
So additions to this were the pointed white and the ticked. And it said broken colors include any solid color in combination with white. So it sounds like that they had defined that a broken must be a recognized color in conjunction hmm. with white. Wow, that's crazy. Speaking of pointed whites, have you ever seen a pointed white mini lock? I have. There's a few. Really? Oh, yeah. I, I don't think I've ever seen one. I remember seeing someone I was in 4-H. I'm not pretending they were very good, but they were <laughs> pointed white mini locks. Okay, <laughs> interesting. By the 1991 through 95 standard, the points allotted to color and markings had been reduced again to the five that we currently um, allot to that. In this standard, they were listed, um, if you look at the breed standard, they were listed in groups, agouti, broken, pointed white, self-shaded, solid, and ticked, to be entered and shown in two classifications, colored and broken. This is the first time that group listing appears in the breed standard. That, to this day, still kind of confuses people a little bit because they wonder, well, why is this listed when they're shown as solid and broken? Let me explain that to you. Under the color standard, it says colored pattern group includes all colors within the recognized groups. Broken pattern group includes any color of recognized group in combination with white. What were the recognized groups? There was not um, a color guide for LOPs at this time, but in this 91 through 95 standard, there was at the very front of the standard descriptions of recognized varieties within the American Rat Breeders Association standard. So this was a little interesting because some of these variety names um, and variety descriptions were not the same in this front end as they were in certain breed standards. But this was really, um, the point of this was to refer to for many um, lops and, you know, other lop colors to just look at what varieties are recognized in this group. But it also included things like Otter Netherland Dwarf. Um, so, you know, it was pretty confusing, I think, for someone who was maybe just trying to figure things out from the standard. You know, well, here's my Blue Dutch, um, but this color is a little different between this um, standard and that standard. There are some colors included that are not part of our language anymore, like um, Madagascar, torts you still hear holland breeders talk about these sometimes and they those are those very reddish rufousy torts with those really dark shadings um there was a, an isabella which i think was probably a um blue tort but anyway so to learn which specific varieties were accepted in mini lops and probably to help you select a variety to put on a pedigree for your mini lops you would have referred to this color descriptions in the front of your standard of perfection that changed again um, pretty drastically in 1996. There was a large revamping of the standard. Um, the largest one, at least, that I've seen. I kind of had to laugh when somebody said that this current standard had more changes. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. You've been around way too long. The 96 standard had a whole bunch of changes. <laughs> a whole bunch of changes. This was the one I took my, my licensing tests under. And... Going from the 91 to 96, uh, there was a whole lot of changes. But anyway, this is the first one um, that was produced with Tex Thomas as a chair. So a lot of things were gone through, modernized, spelled out. This was the first standard in which the LOP color guide appeared. And in this standard, it was the same for English, French, Holland, and Mini. There was the same color descriptions. But again, those listings of groups in the front of the breed told you which varieties were recognized out of that lop color guide. So for mini lops, 
It was a Goody broken pointed white, self-shaded ticked, and wideband, which was every color in the lop color guide. The English and French lops did not include pointed white. So that is why those group listings still remain in the standard. That is what those refer to. And like we've talked about over the years, there have been lots and lots of changes and the many lot breeders have just rolled with it. And so I suppose that's why when we look at the lop color guide and, you know, like when I'm training new registrars or judges or giving them advice, I'll say, okay, there's one little, one little variety in there that, that doesn't apply to all lop breeds. And that's the pointed white because French and English lops don't recognize them, but many lops do. That is correct. And now each lot breed has its own color guide. Um, So that will explicitly spell out the varieties that are raised in that particular breed. And basically there was kind of one color they couldn't agree on, which is the pearl and the frosted pearl. So that's kind of where we are with mini lops being separate from English and French lops. Very interesting. All right. Well, we want to remind everyone to follow and like The Rabbitry on Facebook. That will continue to serve as our hub each and every week for the Best in Show podcast. And wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's on Apple, Audible, Spotify, or Google Play, Best in Show is on it. So please follow it and subscribe it. Podcasts are totally free. And this is a great one to link our rabbit and cavy community, our big family, from wherever you are in the world enjoying rabbits and cavies. So do follow us on those platforms and follow The Rabbitry on Facebook. And a giant thank you, of course, to KW Cages for sponsoring this episode. And if you go to kwcages.com and use the promo code THERABITRY on orders over $75, you're going to get $10 back. All right. Like every episode, we are going to end with a quote. And I've got one this week from George Lucas. And it goes back to something that Sarah talked about in her episode today regarding um, her success with mini lops and the, the notion of focus. So George Lucas says, always remember... Your focus determines your reality. I love that. That's very applicable to all breeds and projects within the rabbit and cavy world. It sure is. Well, thank you again for listening. And as always, here's a reminder to talk rabbits and talk cavies. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.